ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Susie Miller has always had a boldness about her. She had it as a little kid tearing around St Kilda on her bike, working a bunch of part-time jobs, including a groundbreaking stint as a paper girl. And she brought that boldness to her work as a lawyer, advocating for homeless teenagers in King's Cross. When Susie took the risk of leaving her legal career to write plays, it was because she wanted to show the lives she'd encountered as a lawyer to as big an audience as possible. Susie believed that these kinds of stories might help change the world. And the world has sat up and listened. Susie's play, Prima Facie, became a huge hit, playing in Sydney, then in London's West End, and then on Broadway in New York. It tells the story of Tessa, a young barrister who is brilliant at defending men accused of sexual assault, until she herself becomes a victim. Prima Facie won a swag of awards, there's a movie adaptation in the works, and Susie has now turned Prima Facie into a novel. Hi, Susie. Hi, Sarah. So as I say, you started life in St Kilda. What are your memories of the area in the 60s and 70s? (laughs) I feel like I was totally raised in St Kilda. I mean, St Kilda is the most vivid place in my memory. So I started very young in a cul-de-sac that was in the same cul-de-sac that my cousins and my Auntie June lived in. So that was my mother's sister. So we all kind of grew up as one big gaggle of Catholic kids at the local Catholic school and we'd walk to the local park together and the local milk bar together as a bit of a gang. There were four girls in the other family and there was myself, my brother and my sister in our family. You know, we climbed trees and we we just were everywhere at once. You know, in those days where there was very little vigilance about where you were. How did your mum and dad meet? My parents met ice skating at St Moritz Ice Skating Rink, which is right on the esplanade of St Kilda across from Luna Park where they'd go after ice skating. But my mum was a lousy ice skater. (laughs) She wasn't very coordinated, my mum. But my dad was a brilliant ice skater. He was one of those speed skaters and he played ice hockey. So my mother said she would cling to the edges of the skate rink and look over and go, look at that Rob Miller. Imagine being able to skate with someone like him. And then eventually (laughs) he saw her and they kind of had a bit of a conversation. But that wasn't the beginning. Then my mother left school at year nine, after year nine and she went and worked in a whole variety of jobs, including for the Department of Meteorology, and she saved all this money and there was a car that they had that they shared amongst a whole lot of families, you know, like families that they were related to, and my mother was driving that little car down the street and my dad pulled up next to her in his car in St Kilda and there was a red light and he said, oh, it's nice to see you, Where, what are you up to? And she said, well, actually, I'm catching the boat to London tomorrow at 19. What she was she doing? She decided she was going to have an adventure. She was going to go around the world. I mean, all she did was go to Europe and London. But I have the diary of that, which is the most extraordinary entry of entering on the ship and then going into a smaller boat down the Thames. So this kind of been a usual thing for girls in her, no, in her world to do, to, to take at off all. at 19. And the excitement of her going, oh, there's Big Ben. Oh, my goodness. There's, there's the house of Parliament and there's there's Westminster Abbey and I'm reading it and I can hear her voice as a 19-year-old so thrilled and excited and she'd had an affair on the boat and all sorts of things. I mean, she was much gutsier than I was actually. <laughs> so she, she'd met your dad ice skating, run, in, run into him again literally at the lights at in the this lights. little car. And then when she came back to Australia, they followed up after that meeting at the lights because he followed, he actually put in his diary when she was coming back and called up her family home in Barclay Street, St Kilda, where my pop and nan lived until they died virtually. And they started dating from then on. I think she was dating somebody else and then there was this, you know, he was dating someone else as well and it was all a big swirl and before you knew it they were together. So, How did their families react to them getting Terribly. together? <laughs> well, actually my mum's family were pretty fine about it but my dad's family were uh, Protestant and my mum's family were Catholic. And my mum was very upset about the fact that at their wedding, she walked into the bathroom to see her future mother-in-law and sister-in-law weeping in the bathroom because she was Catholic and her brother-in-law, he never came to the wedding and my dad never spoke to his brother again. So there was a sort of mini Protestant Catholic divide in my family from then on. But your dad had had a lot to do with Catholics when he was growing up. Where where was his house? Oh, yes, of course. So there was a school called St Coleman's in Carlisle Street, which is no longer there, actually. I think it's now a different denominational Uh, school, but it was a very disadvantaged Catholic school. 
And in the playground of that school, which is actually the school myself and my cousins went to and my brother and sister, in the playground of that school, my dad had a little house that he lived with his mother and father and his three younger siblings. And it was basically he would have to walk to the presbytery and pay the rent each week and he got treated terribly. Why were they living there in on were school grounds? Very, very poor family, like struggling. My de- my grandfather was a forklift driver but also had an injury of some sort. I mean, he died under the train actually um, on the Balacl- you know, in Balaclava Station. So uh, that was a really tragic ending. And my dad was only 19 at the time and had to go and identify his body. But, you know, and from then, and my grandmother worked all her life as a machinist, like my, my paternal grandmother. So she was, you know, very actively trying to sort of support the family. But they didn't like the Catholics because they looked down on them because they were so poor, which is ironic because the Catholics were pretty poor too. Poorer than you. Who's poorer yeah, than who? I know. So there was this religious divide in, in your family. How did that play out for you? Were you religious as a kid? Well, yes. I mean, you know, you go to a Catholic school and before you know it, by the time I was in year two, I realised that if you told the nuns you wanted to be a nun, you got special treatment, <laughs> didn't you? But yeah, I was I was probably religious till about year two <laughs> and then um, changed schools and was still, Catholicism was all I knew, but I did think it was quite odd for a long time and I'm certainly not religious now. How did it play out in your imagination, Susie, like your early writing experiments as as a kid? I used to write the nativity play every single Christmas and make my poor younger brother play every other character. <laughs> is there much scope for inventiveness in the nativity play? It seems um, to me a fairly pre-planned story. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was the most <laughs> unexciting thing you could imagine. But I did bring other characters in and gave the innkeepers whole backstories. <laughs> and I remember the little drummer boy always had a role because he was something I was quite interested in, even though he wasn't really part of the nativity scene. <laughs> and my little sister always played Mary and she'd just hold a doll. So, yeah, the neighbours would come and half of, most of those weren't Catholic. So it was an interesting, they have to pay their two cents at the door or something. But I have to say that I think Catholicism and Judaism are two, um, two religions that are, or two ethnicity religions that are predominantly within theatre. And I think a lot of the Catholicism is the magic realism and the way that you're taught to believe in certain things and sort of have very physicalizations of like ashes and, you know, and like incense and it's very sensory and it's very theatrical in a way as a way of bringing you into a sort of system to believe in a certain way. What story did your mum tell you about your arrival in the world? Oh, my poor mother and father, they had two children that died before myself, before I was born, and they were two boys. And my mother had only wanted boys, actually. And um, then I was born because they realised what was wrong and they fixed the issue. And when I was born, my mum said, you were the ugliest child anyone had ever seen. You were yellow skin because I had jaundice and you had a flock of red hair. And I wished I, I, I looked back and realised I hadn't married one man because he had very, very strong red hair and you'd had red hair anyway. <laughs> and your eyes hardly opened and you were really fat. And she said, no, you were very unattractive, but everyone just loved you because you were alive. And I went, stop telling me how ugly I was. It's a really horrible experience. <laughs> but she And she said, I thought maybe it's because you were a girl. Like maybe I stopped wanting boys after that because the girl survived. What were your parents doing for work when you came along? Well, my mum was home duties, as it was called then, and my dad was working at the Heinz tomato soup factory at night and trying to study during the day. And then for some reason he went skiing with my mum and he broke his leg and then everything went to shit, apparently, at that point. But, you know, my dad was incredibly handy. And so they lived in this tiny weatherboard house in St Kilda and he made the letterbox, he made the cupboards, he made he made the coffee table, he made the lampshades, he made everything. So he would make those things. He would go to college in the afternoons to study drafting and then he'd work at night, all night, at the tomato soup factory. And then on the weekends, poor man, my grandfather, who was the most charismatic, like amazing human being in so many ways, he was an ex... He had fought in the First World War. He was very involved in the RSL. He was a plumber but he was useless at being a plumber and he didn't drive. So he would make my dad pick him up and drive him around to all these women's houses to fix the plumbing for them over the weekend and charge them. But my dad would do all the work and he'd sit and have cups of tea in the kitchen and charm them with his stories and his beautiful smile. He was incredibly good looking. And my dad would be like with the plunger in the loo. So (laughs) he certainly married into the Catholic tribe. Which So it was my mum's family that we very much bonded with and we're very connected to. So money was tight at home. How good was your mum at hunting down a bargain? Oh, (laughs) a bargain was her source of 
joy in life, to be honest. And look, I mean, at the time, I just assumed because my cousins lived in a similar way, although probably not as as bargain oriented as my mother, actually. But my mother had this dream that if we could save enough money that they could put that aside and things that children needed weren't relevant. But we, I always remember that in Richmond, in Victoria, because we lived in Melbourne, obviously, um, there was a, a shop called Dimmies, which I don't know if it's still there or not, but there was Dimmies would have a shoe sale every January where they would just throw out hundreds of pairs of revolting shoes. I remember my poor brother once had to wear these clodhoppers that had a heel and mum said, well, that's good because he's a bit short. <laughs> and I thought, oh, it's social death. But then I remember another time she found a shoe that she thought, this is perfect for one of us kids. And she said to me, you have to find the other one. So I was scrunching around in the bin with about a million other women and I found the other one and I was pulling like crazy because someone else had it as well. So I was doing a tug of war and pulling like crazy and then looked up and my mother was the person <laughs> at the other end. And we often laughed about that for years to come because that was a very symbolic thing of my mother's <laughs> desire to get what she wanted in life. It was going to be one of those Miller women who got their oh, hands on absolutely. that shoe. <laughs> I know. And then she would buy all my clothes at Fossies, which was just a disaster because first of all, I was terribly thin. So she'd then sew up the back of it so that it was a, that would fit me around the waist. But I always was out of fashion. And so if they ever had a, a mufti day or a casual day at school, I would live in dread because I just knew it was going to be. And one time at, at um, Fossey, she bought me a pair of jeans with a zip up the bottom, you know, at the back. At the like back? A, a very, very thick zip. Never heard of such no, an awful, item. The worst thing you could ever wear. And before that year seven day of casual day, I was doing so well socially. And then I walked in with this these jeans with the zip up the bottom with my mum telling me that they're very glamorous and you're very lucky to have such cool jeans. You won't look like everybody you're else. You're ahead of the pack. Ahead of the pack. And when I arrived at school, I just, I thought, I know that I'm right. She's so wrong. It doesn't sound like she had, she had much sympathy for None your wishes when it came to <laughs> fitting in or clothing. Not at all. In fact, you know, I'd be lucky if I could get something from Cole's Variety. <laughs> she was very, very, she just didn't have, I mean, it actually taught me a lot of grit and she used to say it's character building to wear something that other people don't wear. But it was mortifying, I can't tell you. Who lived across the road from your oh. place as a kid, Susie? The first place we lived in was the weatherboard house where we had umpteen cubby houses and a million guinea pigs out behind the garage until my father found them and got rid of them all. But um, like directly across from our street was a house that was the same, similar house to ours but beautiful garden filled, filled with camellias and lemon trees. And there was a woman called Anne Brown who lived there who was there with her two older siblings and they were, she was one of ten. So I don't know what the other seven were doing. I think they'd all come from Kyneton. And it was Uncle Charlie and Auntie Queenie and Aunt Anne and they were the people that lived across the street. But she was an ex-school teacher and she'd worked in the bush all her life or in the, sort of in the regions. She'd talk about snakes in the classroom and so forth, but she utterly adored me. And I, as a, you know, as a very small child, I was over at her house every single day before I even went to school. What sort of things would you do with her? She would give me book after book. I've still got so many of the books because she'd do this beautiful calligraphy and a beautiful dedication in the front of all of them. I think I have one that says, For dear Susie, <laughs> when she had the measles and was so good, lots of love from Aunt Anne and Auntie Queenie. <laughs> so I still have that one. So I know I've had the measles. Um, but, you know, she just was an, she was an imaginative genius and she sat me down and I, she, I wanted to write. So she gave me pencils and paper. I wanted to draw and paint. She'd provide all of that. She had Mari biscuits and lemonade after school, which, you know, she had little little glasses that the Mari biscuit fitted exactly over the top of it so you could take a bite and just sip out of the Mari biscuit. <laughs> I mean, she just thought of everything and she told me stories about her childhood that are still with me. I mean, the most amazing childhood with all these children in Kyneton and her being a single woman out in the bush teaching these naughty boys at school and so forth. And she was really into gardening and we'd get the lemons off the tree and make lemonade and we would mm. pick the camellias and arrange them around the house. There was a big old grandfather clock in her hallway that would chime every hour. And I never wanted to go home. I loved her so much and she really made me feel so safe and so cared about. And it was a slightly chaotic home, whereas she was just this, I mean, you know, they often say there's one adult in your life that actually changes the trajectory of your life and she was the only person that ever gave me books. My parents weren't into books. In fact, I remember years later someone I knew from university coming over and saying, oh, where are your parents' books? And I had to pretend they were upstairs or something. In the library, yeah. upstairs. Because <laughs> we didn't have, you know, we didn't, we had jaws, I think, on the bookshelf. <laughs> 
How did life change for your family when, when you were nine? Well, my father worked with a mining company called Nobelco, which obviously was the mining company up in the Northern Territory in Nullumboy, or as it was called then, Gove. And so we all flew up to be with him because he had to be there for a year or so. And I think at the time my biggest concern was leaving my cousins behind because I was joined at the hip with my cousin Jenny and Louise and the two younger ones were very close to my younger sister. Um, so it was a big thing and I'd never been on a plane before. So at nine we all got sort of, my, my father went ahead and the three of us with my mum went, flew there. My sister was only two at the time and my brother was seven. What do you remember about arriving? So we arrived to this red, red earth and this heat that was so oppressive. It was aston- It was a shock. It was absolute shock. We didn't know we were even in the same country. And And we had to bunny hop there because you couldn't just fly direct at the time. And we got off the flight and we went to what was going to be our new home, which was basically a demountable, you know, like a tiny little demountable. But actually it had, it must have had four bedrooms, very small ones. And it didn't, had air conditioning, one of those big old air conditioners. There was no television. There was no reception. There was no telephone. There was nothing. And there were frogs in the toilet, which was horrific for me at the time. I mean, I was a Melbourne I was going to say, it's quite a contrast from the, from St Kilda. Absolutely. How did you spend your free time? Well, we were wild. We were just feral children. Like, I don't know what my mother was doing, actually, because she was, uh, she was at home with the kids, but she was socialising a lot with other, other people in the kind of community. And um, and collecting free fish from anyone that used to go fishing because there were amazing barramundis that were being sort of hauled up by various people in the street. But my brother and I just ran wild, actually, and there was a big, like, we were across the road from an open bushland that just went on forever and ever, and we would just, like, wander around for hours on end. And my sister was only two, so she was probably with my mum. That's probably what my mum was probably. doing. She was yeah. probably looking after <laughs> I'm sure she child. was. Yeah, what am I saying? How different was the school there to what you were used to in St Kilda? So I was at a Catholic school in St Kilda, very multicultural, and then I went to a school that went from Year K, which was prep, all the way through to Year 12, called Nullumboy Area School. At the time, it was rough as guts. I mean, honestly, it was extreme. And it was co-ed and there were boys all the way up to year 12. And it was it was dangerous. There were basketballs flying at you every five. But you were these little kids. But the thing is that the kids in my year were rough too and they were horrible because my mum had this terrible idea that because I had a blue and white uniform in Melbourne for my Catholic school, which was checks and little white collars and stuff, cheap as anything, but still looked a bit sort of like Victorian, um, and a belt, Uh, when we went up to NAS, they had a a little dress that was just basically a shift, a singlet dress that was blue and white stripes with a big zip up the front and a badge on it that said Nullumboy Area School. But my mum decided that the uniforms were so similar in colour that I should just wear my old uniform rather than buying a new one. So I did, which actually just labelled me as a total outcast. I know. What did that mean? I never blamed her. I don't know why. I just accepted (laughs) that's my mother's logic made sense. I guess it was cheaper just to wear the old uniform. What did that mean? mean for fitting in social utter death let me tell you i was bullied within an inch of my life there were a bus there was a bus that would take you to and from school you used to start school at eight and finish at 2 30 due to the heat factor which was astonishing and i was as you know i'm very pale so i had a nose that was burnt within an inch of my life every day so much so that at some stage someone suggested i needed plastic surgery to put some more skin on it and so my brother and i would catch that bus to and from school and there was there were basically there were boys that would throw Apple calls at us and sing songs about my mother farting or something. They didn't even know who she was, but I'd be crying, feeling so sorry for my mother, thinking, oh, they're saying such mean things about mum. You Did know? you tell her about what no, life was like I, at school? who's going to say, oh, the boys on the bus think that you fart? You know, it was terrible. But then at school I sat next to a, a girl, a young girl called Ruth, who just decided that I was an easy target and she had a protractor, which we didn't yet have in St Mary's in St Kilda. <laughs> it, was a bit of, it wasn't a school that was as academic advanced as this particular school. It was a much more advanced school being a state school and she decided that if I didn't bring her lollies every day she would totally stab me in the butt all day long which she did and eventually I would just find a way to bring lollies to sort of make sure I didn't get stabbed. (laughs) But who who rescued you from this life of bullying? Okay so I was the outcast but in my year and the year above there were four Aboriginal kids that came from what we called the mission which is now called Yakala in the Northern Territory up it's past Nullumboy. And there were four Aboriginal girls that were allowed to go to the school because they were smart. I'm saying that in inverted commas because I'm sure there were loads of smart kids and why are they allowed to go to the white school? Because they're smart. So they would be bussed in and out. And eventually I sort of approached them thinking maybe I could make friends with them. And they very reluctantly, I might add, said that, yeah, you're a bit of a dork. (laughs) 
And, you know, even my Melbourne accent was just shocking. I mean, I got rid of that very quickly. But they said that if I did their maths, because I was very good at maths, I was always very good at mathematics, and they said if you do our maths homework, we'll we'll let you be part of our friend group. And that was right. Oh, (laughs) at the time it was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So I would go home on their bus with them after school and play at what was then the mission, which was basically this area that was so alien from where I came from. I mean, there was not another white face there. And we would like swim in the water and we would walk through the bush and there would be like these massive anthills and green ants and frogs. And I'm sure there were snakes, but at the time I didn't know about those, I don't think. And, you know, I would get so sunburned, but also um, I would do everyone's maths homework and then we would play and then at some point I would go home or, I I mean, you know, someone would drive me or I'd catch a bus or whatever. I mean, I was only nine or ten and I don't think my parents even knew where I was. (laughs) You went back up to the Territory much later. You went with your son to to try to connect with some of those girls who'd saved your life. What? Did I did because, find? well, basically I did a, when I was a children's lawyer at the Shopfront Legal Centre, I did a, I did a course on young Aboriginal people um, and how to represent them in court in a way that like facilitated a safe way for them. And I went to do a course at the museum in Sydney, which was to facilitate understanding how language worked and so forth. And one of the men who taught the course was from, spoke Yolngu and was from Yakala. And I mentioned that, you know, I'd been there as a kid and he said, oh, who were the girls? And I told him, and he said, oh, they've all passed away now. I was like really gutted. I thought, God, he said, you know, like their life expectancy was low, but the, all these terrible things had happened to them. But he said, you should come up anyway and I'll introduce you to their children. And, you know, that stuck with me and that was a beautiful invitation to come stay in his community in Yakala. And so at the time my son was nine, Gabriel, and we were about to move to London and I thought this is a really great opportunity. Also I was writing something that was particularly pertinent to that. So... We got on a plane and went up there and hired a ute. <laughs> when I think of it now, like a stick ute. And we sort of drove to Yakala and stayed there. And it was and it was about the time that International Women's Day was on. So the women invited us, me, not my son, to go be part of International Women's Day up there. And Gabriel started playing football with all the kids. I mean, I think the, the thing is that it's all, commu- everything is owned communally. So he takes his Crocs off and someone else walks off with him and he's like, what do I do? And I go, I think that's just how it works. <laughs> but, you know, we were both, you know, hats and sunscreen and shoes. But by the end of the week, we were like, no hats, no sunscreen, no shoes, <laughs> like running around and also eating mud crabs on the beach with everyone. And Gabriel actually got adopted into a sort of family group, as did I, but they gave him a, a name connected to their family and to older brothers that Gabriel was so excited to have, two big footballers. (laughs) After your time in the Territory with your family, as a kid, you all came back to St Kilda and back into school, back into high school. You you mentioned you were good at maths, that that was what gained you some social purchase in the Territory. Was your intelligence and ability something you remember being proud of at school? Yeah, not really. <laughs> I think I was a bit hassled for it at times. What do you remember? About I, well, that? when I got to high school, I, I mean, I think at 12, I started getting like 100% in maths exams and so forth. And I remember a group of friends who I was really close to actually, really hassled, like, like not saying they knew it was me, but talking about apparently some girl got 100%, what a loser. And as we walked home, I thought, I'm not going to tell them it's me because we all know we know it's me but I'm just not going to admit to it and I'm not going to um, partake of the conversation. And one of those people who's still a very close friend of mine, she then felt really sorry for me the next day and got to school and put on every blackboard. I want to congratulate my best mate who got 100% in maths. And I continued to get 100% in maths. And, and to be honest, it, at a certain point I got, I realised that it's better not to. I think that I realised that socially it wasn't so great to be so good at things, to be honest. I think Australia does have a real tall poppy syndrome and it still does and it has it at every level of your education and every level of your pursuits later in life as well. What about at home, Susie? Was it something you were praised for when you'd come home and show your mum and dad this 100% on a maths test? I can guarantee that's something my my parents never saw. Yeah. (laughs) Look, my mother was joyful for anything I did. She just was this cup of joy. But she didn't really pay that much attention to it. She just thought that I was brilliant and it was great and it was a good good expression of herself. (laughs) But my dad was very highly critical man, incredibly critical. He was also a bit of a maths genius, but sort of sort of on the spectrum a bit, wasn't so good at emotional conversations and so forth. But he was determined, he never, he could never give praise for anything. And so I remember thinking at a certain point, well, I've finally done it, I've got 100% in 
in maths he can't at 12. He can't possibly find fault with that. And I remember showing him the maths exam because, you know, maybe I got 97 for English and 98 for science or something. So I thought, well, here you go. I'll show him this one because he'll be so happy. And I remember he looked at it and he said, but your writing's messy. But it was a great moment for me, Sarah, because I went, oh, you're the one with the problem. It's not me because 100%, I'm good at math, is 100%, right? <laughs> you can't get more even if your writing's great. And also my writing wasn't even that bad. But I remember thinking, you just cannot say well done. And it was true. He couldn't really. But it liberated you because you totally knew you, it was me. well done. I knew that. And, and also I loved school because the teachers were so full of praise. And so in that regard, you know, I, I was one of those people that loved school because I got that affirmation at school that possibly didn't get quite the same at home. But university, my father was like, why would you go to university? You're smart. You could be a secretary to a great man. And I remember saying to him, why can't I be the great man? And he just was bewildered that I would possibly think that. It was like, I think he, my dad wasn't terribly keen to have children. So I think he was like, I just want to get you all off my hands. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. And so, Susie, were you earning your own money as always, a teenager? Always, always, because as I said, my mum was driven by her budgeting <laughs> and my dad was as well. It was almost like it was a sport for them in a way. So I started work at 11. Basically, I walked into the newsagents underneath the um, Balaclava station in Carlisle Street, St Kilda, and I, there was a sign on the window that said, um, Paperboy Wanted, and I thought, I could do that job. So I walked in and said to the newsagent guy... <laughs> Um, can I apply for the job? And he said, oh, no, I want a boy. And I said, well, can I have a trial run and see how good I am? And if I'm not good enough, then you can, I won't come back. And if I am good enough, you can keep me. I don't know where I got the nows for that. I think it's my mother's influence, just the way she used to talk. And he said, well, I'll give you a go, but really I don't think you're up for it. And it was a really long paper round. It was at night and it was two paper rounds actually joined together because you couldn't get anyone to do the... Were you doing it on a bike or walking? On a bicycle. Oh, God, on a bicycle with a big backpack, like thing on my pack rack with papers. And you'd be cycling and you'd take one out and you'd throw it to where it belonged. But the thing is, because I was so studious and so careful, if it didn't land perfectly on the mat under the sort of shelter, I'd get off my bike and run and place it there very carefully. But it was such a big paper and I had to go back in the middle of the paper and refill for papers and go back out again. And I did that every night after school and every Saturday when the double papers were there. Can you imagine the age? And, and the Herald at the time was big on a Saturday as well. You went out on your trial run and how did he react when well, you well, came I, back? Well, the great thing was that a whole lot of people called up and said, I don't know who you've got now, but they're fantastic. They, I haven't got a wet paper for this week or whatever. And so he was like, oh, well, you can stay until you muck up kind of thing. And my brother had a morning paper round later on after I'd been there for a while. But my mother would often feel bad because he, he wouldn't wake up in the morning. So she'd come and wake me and say, can you do your brother's oh. paper round as well? And I'd be on my bike at 6am on the way to the newsagents going, why did I agree to this? How did this happen? I never, I never got the pay for it. And I earned $7 a week for that night paper round, which was two hours each night. And I saved up. And by the time I was 12, I could buy a pair of boots because my mother wasn't into winter shoes. She thought we'd be fine. We were tough enough to wear our sneakers or our school shoes. And so I bought a pair of boots and I loved those boots so much. And then eventually I bought a, a duffel coat, a little <laughs> duffel coat, because I was so cold on the paper round. But the funny thing, Sarah, is that a girlfriend of mine who's still one of my closest, closest friends, Helen, on, on Saturdays and sometimes after school, she would sit on the backpack and she, I would ding her as well as the paper round. <laughs> And she would pass me the paper and I'd chuck it as we moved. <laughs> Did you give her, cut her any payment? Or well, no, I just didn't actually. Was... You're right. I felt like I was taking an extra load. But she, we would have a whole conversation on the run, which was um, amazing now. And there was one old lady who obviously lived alone and got meals on wheels. But when I delivered the paper, she'd always want me to come in and have a cup of tea. And because I was sort of young Catholic girl, I felt really sorry for her. I remember going in and sitting there thinking, I've just got to get home and do my homework, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so. so 
So how did your um your success at that job change the role? Oh, I know. This is a great story. So when I when I finally resigned because I was in year seven, <laughs> I decided I was I was a grown up enough that, you know, I could quit the paper and work at the local milk bar, which I did. So I did every job for a year and I quit and I got another job. Anyway, when I walked in to quit, he was devastated and he said, no, you're my best paper person ever. And then I remember that after I left and then I walked down Carlisle Street, you know, because I was always up and down Carlisle Street, and I remember um, seeing on the on the window, wanted one paper boy or paper girl, and I thought, yeah, I've Yay! changed the system. I know. <laughs> Trailblazing everywhere, Trailblazing, Susie. absolutely. I know. <laughs> so as you were going from job to job, what was going on with your mum and dad? What community action had they got involved oh, in? Oh, that's right. So my mum went actually very early on, like she was wheeling my little sister around in a pushchair, and she said, a lot of the beautiful old buildings, and they'd grown up in St Kilda, a lot of the beautiful old buildings were being ripped down. And of course, it included my parent, my grandparents' house, in the Gables on Barclay Street. I know that my mum was um, very upset about this. She, she took it quite personally that these beautiful old buildings, and I think they also, because they lived in the area, just thought all these 70s, 60s and 70s buildings were getting sort of built up very quickly all around us. I mean, I think every single house was bought, knocked down and built up. And they joined an organisation called FAG, which was the Flat Action Group at the time. And I remember they were involved in the Flat Action Group. I mean, I couldn't have cared less at the time. I didn't know what it was. But I do remember that there would be these meetings of sort of, I don't know, just a group of small, odd people that would come to our house. And at some stage they came. And for some reason I think my mum had engineered that they joined, but really it was my dad they were interested in because it was a bit of a male-run group. And my mum was serving tea once where they said to my dad, we need someone to stand for the flat action group for council. That's the only way we'll affect change. And my dad, very shy, very much not that person, was like, no way, I can't do that. And my mum was serving the tea at the time and she said, I will. And I think they were a bit taken aback. I mean, she was a woman. There was, a, there was actually at the time there was two women on the council, but they were very well educated. You know, they came from really good families and they knew what they were doing. My mum had no skills at this at all, remember? I mean, Except she, the, these amazing skills of being able to talk to anyone, yeah, she, she, sounds she, like. she didn't have any education, but she had the sort of chutzpah and the skill set. And so she, um, she basically put herself forward and the next thing we knew, the shock and horror of our family that suddenly we were being photographed for a brochure <laughs> that was going to be put in every letterbox in our area, which was, you know, I was, a, I think I was 12 or 13 at the time. It was mortifying. I was like, oh, I can't bear it. This is so embarrassing. How did your family look back then? Well, pretty 70s, let me tell you. I mean, I think my brother and I, he had sort of that sort of shaggy hair and my dad had sideburns and my mum was very sort of like tried to look very wholesome. You know, it was this sort of family values type of craziness. And my mother would never call herself a feminist, even though I very early on did. And that was a bit of a source of tension for us. She's like, oh, I'm not one of those. You know, and I thought, what do you mean? What's wrong with them? Like, it just means you're fighting for women. But anyway, she got onto the council. She got elected and it was a big fanfare because she was this new sort of blood from goodness knows where. You know, it was a big deal in our family and things really changed because she was out every night. She was at meetings every night and she was pretty much the soul of our family. Did you see her like stepping into this this new life? Was, was she yeah, energised yeah, by it? Did you very. see her in a new light? Well, she was always very extroverted and very able to hold conversations and charm people in the life of a party. But suddenly she was on the local newspaper, the Southern Cross News, and she was, I don't know, she was just present. People knew who she was. It was really strange. And I have to say that quite discombobulating in a way because also she was pro-legalising prostitution and I was at a Catholic school that was very anti that and very anti-abortion and so forth. And I remember thinking, oh, I better not talk too much about what my mum's up to at home. And so she didn't stop just at becoming a counsellor. No, she didn't. What That's happened a, next? Well, first of all, as a counsellor, there was a lot of abuse thrown around that council chamber. I mean, I think her and the other women were called witches, witches on their broomsticks that should just disappear and, you know, no one wants them. And there was a lot of, like, verbal abuse. They banded together the women. There's another fabulous woman called Helen Halliday, who's still in my life, and um, a woman called Mary Lou Gelbart, who runs 45 Downstairs, which is a great theatre place in Melbourne. And the three of them really banded together, even though they came from very different backgrounds. And probably the two other women had sort of more distinct politics than my mum, actually, probably more aligned with mine now. But there was just this great kind of camaraderie amongst them, and they... You know, they really changed the face of St Kilda. And the phrase Mayor of St Kilda already oh, yes. had a strange history in your family. Yes. What was that and then how did oh, it become reality? 
So my mum's dad, my pop, who was called Jack Barker, and Vera Barker, who was his wife, who was my nan, and my mum and her sister June and her brother as well, they would be at home and they'd be waiting for their father to come home because the meal would be on the table and it would be hell to pay because it was getting cold and their mother was getting upset. And he would sort of wander in, you know, six foot tall with his hat and his charming smile and his white, gorgeous flock of snowy hair and very tall and slim and well put together. And he'd say, don't, and you know, a bit pissed because he'd been at the RSL and he'd say, don't be mad, Vera, I've been drinking with the mayor of St Kilda. And everyone at the table would be like, wow, that's amazing. Like he's been out with someone like really important. And, you know, the bizarre thing is that when my mum became the mayor of St Kilda, she's the first ever female mayor of St Kilda. And she used to say, I just wish my dad was alive to see this because it would just be the most bizarre thing, you know. And she used to go to the RSL and do the sort of uh, the Anzac Day ceremony and always talk about her dad. Mm. She was close to her dad and I think she really wanted his approval as well. It's a really astonishing first for her to have that kind of political clout. Did it change her at all? Yeah, it did a bit. <laughs> she became very sure of herself, which was great. Uh, she quite liked the attention. Oh, she loved all the sort of media. And I remember once when I went over to London, I had a, I had a leather jacket that an old boyfriend had given me that I loved. And I said, don't let anyone wear this while I'm away, like not my brother or my sister. And she said, no, no, of course not. I'll keep it very safe. And I remember someone sent me a, a cutout picture of my mum from the local paper and she was wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> I came home and I went, what happened to my jacket? And she said, oh, no one wore it. I said, I've got proof. <laughs> and she was like, oh, of course you do. <laughs> How did you find that? But, um, but yeah, she was, she was an astonishing person in that role, but she did, you know, she was very full of herself in it as well. Like she, all we ever talked about was St Kilda Council, which was quite bizarre because at a certain stage we'd moved to Brighton, but she was still on the council there. So she felt that it was in her blood, St Kilda, really. You were on your own trajectory, Susie, and you started off by studying a science degree in Melbourne and then switched to law. Why? So I was doing my honours year in microbiology and immunology and Chernobyl happened and the radio was on in the lab and I was working really long hours in the laboratory, working all weekends, doing lots of experiments. And Chernobyl happened and everyone looked up from their microscopes and went, oh, wow, that's terrible. You know, and it was a scientific thing. So they talked about the science and then they put their heads back down to their microscopes and I went, what about the people? What about the social ramifications? What about the political ramifications? What about the future? And I thought, I can't do science forever. I need to have a conversation. <laughs> and at that stage, I thought, maybe I should go to law school because I was offered a PhD in the lab. So I thought, I'll do a PhD or I'll do, I'll do something else for three years. And I thought, I could go to law school for three years. And if I do it in Sydney, it's three years, not three and a half after you've done a degree. And you only do half a year of College of Law rather than a year of articles, which is what they did in Melbourne at the time. So I saved a year. <laughs> so I moved to Sydney to and do law. That's why. Did you head off by yourself? Did you know anyone? Where did you live? No, you I didn't know anyone. I actually, my mother had one friend that she knew from our days in Nullumboy, who was quite a posh woman who lived on the North Shore in Sydney. And I, I arrived in my little car off the, off the train. I drove it off the train and so I had a little map and I found my way to her place and she was very... Un- <laughs> Very not very excited that I was staying. So she made it very clear that I had a night. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do? <laughs> and because I transferred my part-time job from David Jones Melbourne to David Jones Sydney, I had to go to work the next day. So I went to work the next day, a full day, and while I was there, strangely enough, just before I'd left my house in Melbourne, a friend of my father's, who he also knew from Nullumboy, had come over and said, what do you mean you're going to Sydney on your own? Where are your parents? Because my parents were away. And he said, look, if you get stuck with somewhere to stay, I've got this friend of mine who's a bit of a judge, right? And I thought, yeah, I'll take the number, but there's no way I'm ever going to call this guy. I mean, you know, he's like really important. But when I was at David Jones that day, the woman had made it very clear that, you know, she'd left out all these rentals on the on the breakfast table. I thought, I'm not welcome here. So I um, rang this man and I said, oh, hello, Justice Staples. My name's Susie Miller and I'm the daughter of a friend of a friend of yours or whatever. And they said, if I got desperate, and I'm a little bit desperate. And he went completely silent. Then he said, you've got so much guts calling me. You can come and stay as long as you like. And I stayed there for a month all up because I started going to law school to and from his house until I moved into a tiny little apartment closer to university. And once you started studying law, Susie, did you fall in love with it? Was yeah, it I did, Was it a way of looking at the world and justice that made sense to you? It was a language as well, and it was a language that allowed you to talk about rights and things that I was passionate about but didn't have the language for. And 
I did a Socratic method version of uh, law at UNSW, which I loved. It was very much about conversation and dialogue. And I met amazing people who I'm still terribly close to now. I also just had this really strong sense that, oh, wow, there's a language for power that I didn't know and I had never had access to. And I didn't even realise how little access I had to places of power until I did law and also just to people of power. You married a fellow lawyer. You and, and Robert had two kids together yeah. and you were were working in the law when they were young. Mm-hmm. How challenging was it to flip between the kinds of stories and lives you were immersed in yeah. as as a, a lawyer and life at home? As yeah. A so by the time I was um, a parent, I was a children's lawyer and a human rights lawyer. I worked for a brief time at the Marrickville Legal Centre as their children's lawyer and then I moved to the Shopfront Legal Centre, which was set in King's Cross in Sydney and it worked with homeless young people and they had to have more than just homelessness. Like we diverted them from legal aid and we took on their case and they would have they would have all sorts of issues really. They'd, be, they'd have sort of drug and alcohol problems, mental health problems, they'd be working in the sex industry. They would have like non-English speaking backgrounds or sort of even we, I even did an immigration qualification at one point so that we could work for young people that were being sex trafficked in the cross. So basically that job was really confronting when you have small children because I worked for for children from the age of zero all the way up to, and actually up to 25, so young adults. And most of our clients were young adults. But you'd read all the reports and you'd read things that had happened to young children or young people. And when you come home to your home and you realise that your children are so vulnerable and as a mother you just have that hypervigilance about your babies... It was very, very hard to reconcile. And I think also what happened after a while, my kids would sometimes come to court with me when they were young, like like a day off school. They, you know, I mean, we didn't have parents. My parents were in Melbourne, Robert's were in Perth. So they would come to court with me, not with Robert, I might add. <laughs> He'd have his corporate cases and somehow they'd be attached to me and I'd be dropping them at school and realise, oh, no, they're not well enough, they'll have to come to court. So, and I also always remember one day Gabriel was in court at about six, you know, he'd vomited in the car on the way to school and had to come to, and there was a, first of all, there was a man in, at Belmain Court, there was a man who was in custody who wasn't doing very well at all. He hadn't had his psych meds, who was my client. He was a young man. And I remember Gabriel sitting behind me while I was sort of advocating strongly for some sort of bail so he could get psych treatment. It was being refused and I was coming up with all sorts of excuses. I remember Gabriel tapping me on the back and I turned around in this really intense moment with my client crying in custody in court and he goes, I'm really hungry. (laughs) And and then a minute later I see him up with the associate colouring in. You know, she'd obviously tried to save me from the despair of being a mother and an advocate. I I also worked with another young mum at the time. We're very close, Jane Irwin, and the two of us worked with the same clients and we would share stories about going home to our children and just feeling this despair that all children are on a trajectory towards this life that we were we were exposed to. And then eventually they had therapists come in to talk to us because we needed to be debriefed. And I remember someone said something amazing. They said, even for your clients, the day they're with you, despite all the hardship of their life, this is the worst day of their life because they're going to court and they're terrified. And that actually helped me a bit. I thought, oh, this is like the ER version of law. And in a way, if they have other bits of their life that are half decent, I felt a bit better. But, you know, because otherwise you just take on this ridiculous responsibility. So when you started writing plays and, and writing stories out of those lives that you were encountering in that work, was it, I don't know, was it kind of a way to exercise yeah, some I of think those it was. demons? Yeah. So the first play I wrote was called Cross Sections, which went on at the Old Fitz, which is a, a sort of industry sort of entry point in Sydney for theatre. And it went so well that it got picked up by the Opera House, which was astonishing. But the great thing about it being on In the Cross was that people contacted me afterwards and said, I saw the play in the cross and I walked through the cross on the way home and I looked at the people around me and I saw them differently. And to me, that was everything. I went and gave a lecture at Sydney University and one woman put up her hand and said, look, my my sister died on the streets of King's Cross of a heroin overdose and I've always hated her for what she did to my family because it destroyed our family. And she said, when I saw your play at the Opera House... She said, I actually thought, oh, my God, she was filled with despair. I never saw that. And she said, I suddenly can love my sister again and forgive, like, what I saw as an abuse of our family, as seeing it was just an acting out of despair. And to me, that was worth writing the whole play for. So it was putting the human, messy human story into what can be quite clinical headlines or legal cases. That motivated Prima Facie, which first premiered in 2019 and, and went on to become this huge success. What was it like, Susie, to sit in the audience and watch that story being performed on stage? 
Well, the first time it was performed on stage was at the Griffin Theatre and the very first preview was really interesting because I was sitting with the director, Lee Lewis, and she and I sat there and watched Sharon and do the first preview where, of course, lines were dropped and there were problems with the lighting cues and everything, but the audience in one huge wave just stood and cheered and cheered the play and we'd never seen that before and it never stopped happening. It happened at every single preview, every single production and then right around the world, like, the very first preview in London, the same thing happened with a thousand people. And to me, it was, it was, it's like it's outside of me, this experience, because I wrote the play and then it became different things. So Jodie Comer, who went on to perform it in, on the West End and on yes, Broadway, yes. what has she told you about the kind of audience response that she's received? Yeah, well, both Jodie and I had millions and millions of cards and letters and DMs and I'm still getting them. I mean, we just have this avalanche of people contacting us, sending us presents to say thank you. And is there a common thread through all of those Yeah, people responses? give us their testimonies and say, this is my experience and this is how I knew. And like I had one woman in New York and honestly in New York had this incredible response where people would queue up around the block just to get my signature on their um, script and say, and one woman said to me, I've been in therapy for five years after a sexual assault, but seeing this just made me feel like I have a voice and I just stopped panicking. I was, like I saw it in London and I've come back to see it in... New York. But even aside from people that had the same experience, we had so many people come to see it that, I mean, Jodie and Jody and Sheridan do this incredible job of the production and now it's on all over the world. So I don't even know half of the Tesses that have done it now. <laughs> but, you know, an amazing thing for me is the power of theatre. It's like, and I think post-COVID, we learn that to assemble as a community is this really profound experience because we were denied that in COVID and we thought that maybe Netflix could take over from theatre, but we now know because there's something about being shoulder to shoulder, even with a stranger, that you turn to each other while you're weeping at the end of a play and go, that was incredible or that was, oh, I'm really shocked by that or whatever. But there's something about human connection that you can't replace and I think theatre does it and I'm very passionate about how theatre does that and I feel that watching something together and being led somewhere by a play and a, and, and a set of actors and a director where at the end you're quite united, I don't know, something profound about it and I feel so, so humbled that I was able to like, make a play that could do that and take the best from theatre and actually like as in bring out that element of theatre that is about community. Prima facie is uh, is partly a challenge to the legal system and how it fails victims of, of sexual assault. How yeah. has the legal profession responded? Amazing. Like, you know, at first, the very first Q&A we did in Sydney was all female lawyers, like only female lawyers, which was just an experiment. All female judges, solicitors, barristers, defence barristers, everyone. And in the front was a woman who's a QC who only does defence law. And she was amazing because I was scared to death of what she would say because, you know, I mean, I'm a defence lawyer. I believe in innocence until proven guilty. I don't want people convicted if there's not overwhelming, you know, reasonable doubt <laughs> of what they're saying. But I think the thing is with sexual assault is that the way it's been described and the way it's, it's, it's actually evolved has not taken into account what it does to the witnesses of sexual assault, which is usually the victim and the demolishing of their kind of sense of self in that process. In order to find a reasonable doubt, you have to demolish somebody. And you don't even have to get on the stand yourself as, a, as an accused, which is their right, totally, and I completely agree with that. But I think when it comes to sexual assault, we've got it wrong because we haven't actually recognised that we're re-traumatising someone who's a victim and we haven't actually understood what the kind of scope is. And, there's, you know, I mean, it's a much more complex story than what I'm saying I guess you have to see the play or, or, or read something about it to actually understand how the feminist lens of sexual assault works. Did your mum get to see the success? No, she didn't. And it was devastating for me, Sarah, because she died. She Actually, I, I, I slept with, you know, on a mattress beside her in hospital for 16 days and then she died and I went up the next day and they had the first preview of Prima Facie. And I remember there's a line in the play where the young woman, Tessa, who's the character, wants to go home and says, all I want to do is be on the old floral sofa, cuddled up to my mother and feeling the sort of rough heat of her. And that's the time that I weep every time it plays because that floral sofa is based on my mother's floral sofa because that was the image I had in my head of my mother's floral sofa. And that she wasn't around for that was devastating because she was such a supporter of my plays. She was such a, 
She came to everything she could come to. And the fact of it being on the West End when she loved London so much and she was so into that. can imagine her really getting into the parties and the champagne Absol- Oh, my gosh, you have no idea. And, in fact, I have a lovely friend, John Sheedy, who's a director in Melbourne, but he laughs so much because he would have these, you know, my mum was very straightforward with him about how much she liked the party side of it and how much she wanted to be glamorous with it all. <laughs> Got to sit through the play, but then we <laughs> yeah. get the party. And the champagne. <laughs> I know, which, of course, to me is the part that I go, oh, God, I just want to go home. Debrief, but you know, like she died just before the preview, and then after the preview, I then had to go home for her funeral, conduct her funeral, then come back for the opening night, and then have all those reviews. Well, thank God they were good, but you know, it was a time in my life that actually is quite blurry in some ways because I, I, you know, people, someone said to me, I heard your mother passed away, and I was just like, don't talk about it, I can't actually consume that while I'm in front of a camera all the time. So um, it was really hard. And then when I was in London, you know, I wandered around London. I think Mother's Day came and went and I was in a blur of misery. <laughs> but that's what happens when you lose a parent. You know, it, it lingers for such a long time and I still, not a day goes by where I don't think I'd love to tell her something or I laugh about something that she, you know, I just miss her terribly. It sounds like there have been many points in your life, Susie, where you've kind of just kept going when Mm. almost against the odds or against other people's expectations, you just kept pushing yourself to the next thing. How Mm. do you make sense of that? What's what's behind that, do you think? You know, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I sometimes put it down to having a less vigilant childhood where I basically had parents that were sort of not really involved in what I was doing day to day. So I was left to my own devices. And if I was scared, I had to protect myself. And if I was out at night on my bike, I had to find my way home as a young person. But, you know, I didn't expect my parents to step up and look after me or provide for me, really. I mean, it wasn't just part of my expectation. And I think you just develop a certain level of grit But also I look at my mum and she was what I call the finder of ways. She always had the way, she had a conversation for everything or a way around certain authority figures and a way around how to get something in a way that you didn't have to go through all the processes. And I watched her deal with authority and I guess it broke it down for me to say, actually, you know, like maybe you just do what you want to do anyway. (laughs) So, and you know, I am, I am ambitious. And I say that because I think women are frightened to say they're ambitious. And I think ambition is not a dirty word. It's not a negative word. It's actually what you have. And you are ambitious for lots of reasons. It's not all just about yourself. And I think it also is great to have a drive in life and a passion in life that you are still so excited by and that you're still so you know, there's so much you want to do. And I I feel so lucky to have that because, you know, I guess it can't be taken away. So I feel very lucky that I stumbled across so many things that made me so excited and happy. And I'm very curious about the world and particularly about people. Susie, it's a delight to have you on Conversations. Thank you so much for being our guest. It's so nice to talk to you. It's just lovely. I feel really, really lucky to be here. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.